Hello and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 678. This is November the 30th. Jim is over in the USA as ever. Jim, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. Back from vacation. Well rested and ready to talk motorcycles and whatnot. But it's cold, so I've got that hockey itch real bad. <laughs> I spent a lot. I spent a lot of time over uh, vacation thinking about who I would pick for the USA Olympic team. Wow. Yeah, I know. I have hockey's like my other sport. If it isn't got a motor in it, I like ice hockey. So I was just thinking like, oh, who would I pick? And of these people, who, what lines could I make? I Sorry, I just I go off in these tangents at times. I'm not really one to follow soccer, football, as we call it over here. And although I've got a passing interest in rugby, but much to the relief of my wife, once the, the two un four-wheel seasons come to a close there is at least three or four months where i'm not sat in front of the tv watching sport all the time so i'm kind of uh, already having slight withdrawal symptoms that now that uh, all of the main bike racing series are, are finished i'm not quite sure when jack miller was doing his aussie superbike uh, ride this Did weekend you? i think okay he's like i know it was sometime in december we have to figure out how to watch that because i think we all want to see that one so yeah so We've been away for a week or so, as Jim just said. He's been on vacation, and we just took a took a week off just to catch breath. There has actually been quite a lot of news and some excellent listener feedback that came in over that period. So for this show, we were going to do some review stuff in terms of the MotoGP, Moto2, Moto3. But Jim, I think we feel that we've got quite a bit of listener feedback to get through. A fair amount of news that's cropped over over the, over the last couple of weeks or so. So I think this is going to fill up a show. So probably what we'll do is we'll come back again next week and we'll have a bit of a, a season review, just pick some highlights from each of the three categories and have a, a little bit of a chat about that next week. Yep, I think that's a good idea. Oh, may I say one thing to you, Rich? Please. Congratulations on your interview with the guy with the team. with the Oh, vets. Phil Spencer. Phil Spencer, thank you. Yeah. A fabulous interview. I finally got my chance to actually listen to it. I thought it was really good. Very well done. What Phil is doing is absolutely amazing. Incredible. I got done listening to it. I went home. I wound back to where he talked, where the website was. I went there. I threw a few quid in. Is that right? Quid? Yes, quid? exactly okay. right. Thank uh, you. <laughs> I threw a few quid in. Anybody else out there, if you can throw some quid in too, that would be amazing. I, I have a soft spot for all of our veterans from any country, whether it's the US, Britain, wherever. And you, the, what really got me was the story of the vet who had PTSD and it's loud jet noises. Yep. And everyone knows that the flight path is there. Jets are going over all the time at Donington. And yet he still goes and has three sleepless days, he said. Yep. And still does it because he needs that camaraderie, that team, that everything. And uh, yeah, I'm like, okay, dude, you, you got to keep that going. So here's some quid from me. Yeah. Great. Well, it's no. Fantastic I'm... what they're doing. Thank you. I mean, it was my first interview in actual fact, but I mean, Phil did all of the talking because uh, obviously that was what he was there to do. And, um, you know, the scale of that team is, is really impressive as well. I mean, they're running four bikes. Phil actually contacted me back after the show went out and has invited me to catch up with him again at some point in the next few weeks where he'll start to talk a little bit more about their expanded plans for 2022 so it'll be good to to find out from phil what they're planning to do which classes they're going to be running in perhaps who who, the, who they're going to be running in terms of riders uh, but as i said in, in in the bsb show that we did i mean that team is competing right at the front as well so from every aspect i mean we could talk about that 
team for probably the better part of an hour, which we won't, but uh, but we will certainly uh, check in with Phil several times, hopefully next season. And as I say, I'm going to catch up with him in a few days, hopefully as well. But uh, yeah, no, thank you for that, Jim. That's great to hear. No problem. We jump into all the news and so on. Uh, just the usual quick shout out to people that like and listen to the show, just to hit that subscribe button. And if you can, head over to motopodcast.com. That's where you'll find the uh, the buttons to donate or to join us through Patreon. So as we always say, and I know we sound a bit like a broken record, but every dollar, cent, every currency you can think of is, is very helpful to us. We are at pains always to try and make sure that we stay rid of advertisements and so on. Hopefully the listeners like the fact that we don't get interrupted with adverts cropping up all the time. So the generous subscribers that we have and contributors really help us to achieve that. So without further ado, Jim... Chris Boyce uh, has sent in some feedback to us before. Uh, Listeners, you'll have to bear with us a little bit on this because there is quite a lot of wordage to get through here. Chris contacted me through Twitter, which I'm very pleased about, for the second time. So he came up with a couple of points. I'm just going to read them out. I did give him a reply through Twitter. So perhaps, Jim, will get your view on the points before I tell you or tell the listeners what I replied to Chris. But Chris, thank you very much indeed, and keep them coming. So point number one was, uh, I foresee Raul, as in Fernandez, going to Yamaha, not Suzuki. Reason being is, if I'm not mistaken, Yamaha have hired his crew chief, and they will be looking to move on from Dovi faster than Suzuki is willing to move on from Rins. I think they give Rins one more chance, depending on how good the 2022 bike is. If it's as good as Sylvain Grintoli says, then maybe he won't feel the need to override the bike, uh, by which obviously he's referring to numerous uh, typically front-end crashes from Alex Rins. So, yeah, what do you think on that one, Jim? Interesting thought. Yeah, I could see Raul at Yamaha too, but it would be Razali's team. So it's not the factory Yamaha, because I'm pretty sure that they're only getting one factory bike. And yep. then they got another, call it B-Spec bike, probably. So, yeah, it could happen. Is Dovey's probably only there for sponsorship money. It's the big name to bring in the money. But as far as I know right now, the only sponsor that's on the bike is the With You brand. Yeah. Now, they're sort of small sponsors of a lot of different bikes and classes within the MotoGP paddock. I always thought, and I think we had said it on the show, that there someone had linked Dovey to, like, a big Italian sponsorship deal, which hasn't been announced and hasn't come through yet. That being the case, if you didn't get the money from Dovey, why is Dovey there? This is nothing against Davizioso. He's a fabulous rider, but I think he's falling into the same category as Rossi has. The mind's willing, the talent's there, but the kids are just way faster than what Rossi or Davizioso are going to be willing to willing to push and to make the challenge even worse for Dovey is that he has to learn a bike that he's definitely not used to. Granted, he'd been on a Yamaha, but he'd been on that Ducati for almost forever, Mm. which is going to be very different. And he even admitted that at the test that he's having to change his style and learn again. And I think there was also news that Rossi was faster than he probably has ever been on that Yamaha. And it still wasn't fast enough. So, yeah, I mean, there's very possibly that they do move on from Dovey after this year to see what they could do. I would think Raul would be a name that people would want to attach themselves to as a kid coming on, whether it's energy drink money or, you know, 
whatever else that's out there. I mean, it's kind of hard to think of like who all sponsors what, where, when, why. You have oil companies that are on the bikes, but Petronas has left, or at least they want to scale back their amount of money they were paying. So it's possible. Now, as far as Suzuki and Renz, mm. I think Suzuki would probably keep Renz. I think he's right about that one. But they have to be upset with the fact that he's always on the ground. Yeah. You, 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 your job there, for one, is to obviously win a world title. But on the second part of that, you're supposed to be finishing near the podium or be near your teammate to either take points off of somebody else or garner more points for the team's championship that you would want. So, yeah. The question is if, 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 if that. 2022 bike is as good as they think it's going to be well that puts the cat amongst the pigeons for both mir and rins because i'm not so sure who i rate higher in that team part of me thinks that rins has more natural talent than say mir but mir is a more heady rider who understands that being on the bike is the most important part of winning a championship yeah so that, I don't know. Again, I think this whole Fernandez at KTM story is going to be the story of next year. And there are going to, everybody will be attached to this kid as we go along. And the persons who aren't attached to it right now is Honda. And I got a sneaky feeling that they're probably backdoor low key looking to either get that kid's signature for like a, a 20, what is it, 20, 22, 23, like a 2024 type contract, because we don't know what's happening with Marquez. We're in a weight game with that whole thing. Yeah. But who would you want to have as the heir apparent if Mark cannot come back? I'm not saying he's he can't or he won't. We just don't know. And you don't, you got to hedge your bet somewhere. I mean, it's got to be Raul Fernandez or Pedro Acosta, I would have thought. I mean, Honda will no doubt be getting their very large checkbook out trying to tempt one of those guys mm-hmm. and there's spanish the so it fits with repsol beautifully absolutely yeah yeah <laughs> repsol's got money last i checked <laughs> so they're gonna be they'll peel out the cash to get anybody out of whatever they need to do yeah and let's be honest mark marquez has been the, the sort of the talisman figure for them for quite some years now and as yeah. we've said many times on on recent shows the bike has been very much built around him and, and that sort of wild style so they, they need to find somebody that is just super gifted or has a wild style as well i mean though i would also throw perhaps top rack rasgatioglu into that mix as well because mm. he would probably be pretty good on that honda with the way that he rides which is very reminiscent of mark marquez you know all on the front end rear six inches in the air going into a corner with the front end sliding i mean just crazy crazy talent so there are a few candidates there but i mean coming back raul fernandez i was listening to another podcast the other day and they were talking at some length about what a difficult character he is very demanding prima donna-ish think john kaczynski ish in terms of ktm bending over backwards to accommodate him i mean uh, you may have caught over the valencia weekend there was this spat that happened about his younger brother adrian fernandez not having a seat anywhere so ktm created space at tech three for him really under the kind of uh, let's say the uh what's the word i'm looking for uh insistence perhaps of, of the ktm factory just to keep their star rider happy and i i, th- I think there have been various things said and done through the course of the season, which points Raul out as a, a super talent, 
genius, call him what you will. And clearly, you know, he's been unbelievable on the Moto2 bike this year. And did actually, after all the spitting out of the dummies over the fact that he was, you know, boohoo being forced to ride a KTM MotoGP bike, but did then go on to say after the Hareth test, it was the best day of his life. You know, the first day on the bike. On the Who wouldn't have the best day of their life? You yeah, would have well, the best yeah. day of your life. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, no. <laughs> but he had Come been on. moaning and groaning in the media quite um, vociferously about the fact that he was, you know, into that contract with Tech 3 on the KTM and had wanted to go to Yamaha again, as we've said. So they've got there's a bit of man management to do there by the looks of it. In terms of Rins, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, really. The problem for him, and this is kind of what I replied to Chris, was that Rins could get away with the year that he'd had if his teammate had been doing the same thing, because that would have pointed to a bike issue, perhaps more than anything else. But, you know, he's had a lot of shade thrown on him by Joanne Mir, who has been super consistent and got the best out of that bike, which, you know, we've seen this year. It hasn't been a match for the Yamaha in Fabio's hands, and certainly not the Ducati in Bagnaia's hands in the second half of the season. So he's made the best of it. And Rins, we don't really know what his problem has been, whether it's just overriding or something in the setup that hasn't favoured his particular style. But he always seems to have the same sort of crash, doesn't he? They're pretty consistent. It's way deep, late on the brakes, front end, bonk, down. Yeah. So like I think he still can't ride. Like he, like if they had Bridgestones, the, un- the uncrashable front Bridgestone, like Rins would be a superstar, but they yeah. don't. And like, you have to figure out how not how to ride with the round black things they give you. Yeah, and you, you know your your main competitor is your teammate in in motorsport, isn't it? So, mm, yep. On that measure, he's not had a stellar year. I, I do happen to agree with the comment that was made that probably Suzuki are going to stick with him, but he can't afford to have a season next year like he's had this year because then I think questions will certainly be asked, and there are so many people coming up and knocking on the door of MotoGP that Suzuki can't really hold on too much longer. Otherwise, they'll miss the next round of young talent coming through. So, yeah, that I was, think that's where Suzuki needs a satellite team. Absolutely, yes. They need to they yeah. need to be able to grab all of this amazingly awesome talent and have a place for them to go. Yeah, well, and to have another two people feeding back on the bike development. I agreed. I mean, I realize it's a it's a deal where they don't have the money. They're not the biggest manufacturer of there so they have to have some somebody to actually fund it but wouldn't it be cool if like Fazia had a contract to ride on a b team Kalos or b team suzuki yeah he seasons in move him on to the email ktm has done this right in so many ways about finding talent grooming talent and having places to put them one slight, I mean, we're going off topic already, but one slight fear I have for, for next season is, you know, the the armada of Ducatis out there. And even the what even the people that are riding on, you know, 2019 or 20, no, well, it wouldn't be that old, 2020 or 2021 spec bikes. I mean, those were good bikes. So there is a slight worry that, you know, there might be a sort of a, a wave of Ducatis at the front and everybody else sort of loitering a bit further back and that wouldn't necessarily be terribly healthy for the sport in my view so i do lament the fact that suzuki in particular don't have a second set of bikes out there i mean you can understand it perhaps a bit more from the point of view of aprilia because they've got enough of a job on their hands getting the bikes that they've got up to speed and they are getting there but again very small factory and i you know i i lament the fact that kawasaki never came back into MotoGP as well but that's the story for another day, I suppose. But 
so that was kind of the view on Fernandez uh, and, and Rins respectively. And then Chris's second comment was that even though, coming back to this point, even though Ducati will have 12 bikes on the grid next year and are potentially the favourite to win the title, I think it will come down to how well they do in the first half of the season. Fabio has a tendency to be red hot from race one, grab chunks of points and then taper off towards the end of the season, which we have seen over the last two years. Peko seems to be the opposite, a slow burner, and then heats up the longer the series goes on. So if Peko can improve the first half of the season, I think he's the champion. Otherwise, it's Fabio's or Mir again. Fair point, I think. I tend to agree with that. Oh, that's a completely... Completely fair point. Where did Fabio learn that you got to put the points in the bank at the beginning from some guy named Mark Marquez? Because how many times did Mark Marquez come out at the beginning of the year and just literally just decimate people and have three, four, five wins in a row? Because season used to start, used to, still does, you idiot, starts in Qatar, but it would go to Argentina. And how many races did Mark win there or at least be on the podium there? He'd go to Coda and win that race. You could just check that box. He was going to do it. Yep, and then he'd yep. show up in Hareth and he'd still be fast on that bike. And everybody else is kind of standing back going, hey, whoa, we're just trying to get our feet going here. No, the boy was racing for the title at the very beginning, wanted to bank all the points. So it's a fair point that Fabio comes out hard. I think Qatar track is a Yamaha-esque track with the way that the, the corners all blend together with each other. It's been seen over the years that everybody on Yamaha seems to do really well there. And then after that, you get more to the pointy, squirty kind of things, and here comes Marquez in that V4 again. So there is the possibility that if Benyaya has it all screwed together at the beginning of the season, that he will simply be world champion with four or five races left to go easily. Yeah. It, there could be a, you know, as much as this kills me. The only two people I see on the motorcycles that we that we know for right now that could challenge Peco is Jorge Martin and Quattraro. But if Quattraro exhibits the same tendencies that we've seen, that as the season goes on, he tends to get a little bit slower, ooh, then it's definitely going to be between Martin or Benyai on the Ducatis. Yeah, I, I mean, really, Chris is exactly right, isn't he, about Fabio? Yeah tapering off towards the end of a season we've seen that you know very much in the last two seasons so that is a concern and although don't want to lean too hard into the news section i think the big problem that yamaha have or fabio more particularly has is the things that he was saying after the hereth test which were not particularly complimentary because as we were discussing on the last show i think it was the last show the one thing that yamaha have to find is horsepower and they didn't bring the new engine to hereth which leaves them with Sepang and Indonesia, both of which are very likely to be rain affected at various points because that's the nature of that part of the world. And quite unusual track conditions there given the the very sort of hot, humid climate in both of those places, which is distinctly different to just about everywhere else that you go. So for Yamaha not to have brought the engine seemed very curious given that you would have thought they'd have been working on it at the factory for months. And so, so Fabio's comments were very much, I didn't have anything new to try. We haven't made any progress. And he didn't look particularly pleased when he was saying it. So to me, that would be some alarm bells ringing with what we know about the new Honda and what we definitely know about the Ducatis. Yep. So whether Fabio's even in the battle next year might prove to be a moot point. It could be. 
the dream is Marquez comes back to double vision or he has not to get too newsy, but he's there. They could do surgery. I've heard that it's a wait and see game. If Mir Suzuki has more power, that would be great because then it would be Mir with Marquez because I don't care what version brand style Honda that's there. He will somehow will that thing to the front. It just yep. will happen. You know, you're going to have, I think, Martin and Benyaya at the sharp end all the time with the Ducatis. Miller, talented individual, great guy. I don't think he has what it takes to be consistently fast everywhere. So on his day, Miller will beat everybody. But then Miller will have those days where he can't get out of his own way, and he's going to be fifth. That's not where Martin and Becca are going to be. They're going to be at the very sharp end. It's going to be interesting. And I think you're spot on right about Jorge Martin. I mean, it'd be wrong really to even consider him a sort of a dark horse, really, given the form mm. that he's had this year, given that he's a rookie, yep. but with the with a season under his belt and assuming he can stay reasonably fit and uninjured, because obviously that was a big uh, chunk of his season that he lost after that nasty crash that he had in Portimao, I think it was. Uh, the he's f- still not fully healed. No, no. In so, fact, he's having surgery over the winter, presumably to do some corrective procedures on the tail end of those lingering injuries that he has so but i read today that he's he's due for some surgery i didn't see what surgery but i'm guessing that it must be related to that yep unless he's, he's heading off an arm pump type of an issue but uh, anyway yeah so that, that was the feedback or the questions from chris and i hope hope we talked away around that reasonably well we then had a very long email come in from a chap called gary shavitt so We'll do these one at a time and see where we end up, Jim, in terms of our comments. But first point was that uh, I have to admit that I was wrong about Fabio taking the championship. But I still do believe that Moto3 and Moto2 is where a rider learns how to win championships. It's the exception that a rider will go through the lower categories without winning a championship and make it happen in MotoGP. You were right about Gian Mir performing under par in Moto2, but... You seem to have forgotten that in Moto3, he was spectacular and won the championship against very tough competition. Yeah, good point, Gary. Yes, we did sort of bypass Mir on this one. And yes, he did win that world championship against stout competition. What was in my head, and I didn't articulate it very well, is that if we look at the two best MotoGP riders by terms of championship over the last 20-odd years, they're Valentino Rossi with his uh, seven titles in MotoGP. Yep. And Mark Marquez has six world titles in MotoGP. Those two gentlemen won a world title. and Well, Rossi won a world title in 125. He won a 250 world title and then rambled off his seven MotoGP titles. Marquez won a 125 title. He won a Moto2 title and then ran off six MotoGP titles. The point I was trying to make is that the guys who are the creme de la creme and the absolute stars have won and have not underperformed in any of the classes that they've been in, which is why I look at a uh, Pedro Acosta very carefully. The kid did something amazing that hasn't been done in 30 years in that class. I think he's an extremely talented person and he's got sort of that mental makeup that nothing really kind of bothers him. Well, youth will do that for you, right? It's yep. we got to see how he tapers and tempers himself. 
is he going to do like a Rossi thing? The first year of Moto2 is going to be a learning experience. Then his next year in Moto2, he just like lays decimation to everybody. Does he come in? Does he just decimate everybody in Moto2? Don't know. But if he does, he will go right to MotoGP on a KTM, and then we're going to see what he can do. It's true. Mir is a world champion. He's a world champion in Moto3. He's a world champion in Moto2. But Delaporta has been a Moto3 world champion, but he has done nothing in a Moto2 seat. You had other guys who've never been able to do it. So you're right. You learn how to win a championship in there. And I think I've said this before on the show, Rich, is like Moto3 is where you learn how to talk with your mechanics and you have a very limited number of things that you can work on a setup. You uh, you learn how to talk that through and how how and what changes affect that motorcycle and how it affects how you want to ride that motorcycle. And then you move into the Moto2 where you get more horsepower, you learn how to slide the bike a little more, and it takes a little more time for you to set up that, you know, you have more electronics to kind of play with as you go through it. And you learn there to develop your race craft and your championship winning craft as you go along. It's easier to do it in lower classes where there isn't all that tension, pressure, everything else on you. But I ask you this, Rich, do you think Mir can win another world title on a Suzuki? I, th- I think he can, without a doubt, if he's got the bike under him to compete with. You know, ah, see, the there's the point. You, yeah. if the bike, I think yeah, he's yeah. A, I think he has the ability to win another world championship easily, if he were put onto a Ducati or if he got on a Yamaha. I just don't, I don't see Suzuki building him a motorcycle that's going to be good enough for him. He's even said that, hey, we're going to see how 2022 rolls out before I commit to anything longer. He could very well be. If he's not near the podium or has only a couple of thirds by the halfway point of the season, we're going to be talking about where is he going. Yeah, and as you said a few shows back, Suzuki historically have had a, a one-off kind of championship winning campaign punctuated by a 10 to 15 or even 20 year break. Yeah. So that is not something they can afford to repeat if they want to keep the top talent. Not mm. now. Not, not, <laughs> no, not now. Championship no. Is, mm. is now and the exposure that it has. I mean, my, my reply to... To Gary on this particular point was I'd say that Mir lacked a bit of time on Moto2 to really get to grips with it because on the strength of what was a stellar Moto3 career he was an obvious target for MotoGP and snapped up very early so as far as I can recall Mir only had one season in Moto2 and did pretty well but he didn't win the championship. Fabio Quattraro was a shining example of a rider who seemed like an odd pick for MotoGP, having underperformed versus expectations in the lower categories. Although I do point out, although I can't remember precisely, but I'm fairly sure he was uh, the CEV European Moto3 championship uh, champion before he came up to what we call Moto3. So he had a very successful pre-MotoGP paddock career for sure. But but certainly, having seemed a bit of an odd pick, he definitely found his feet very quickly in MotoGP. I then said, let's see what the likes of uh, Digi Antonio can do to pleasantly surprise us uh, in the way that Bastianini has done this year. But it's obviously, that's not a foregone conclusion that uh, Digi will jump on a MotoGP bike and do really well, because some people make the transition and others don't between all three categories. So yours was an interesting point. I mean, Marquez is the, the obvious recent example of somebody that's just shone bright in every category that he's been in i think there's the the risk of booze and whistles there may be a slight case for saying that back in the two-stroke 125 and 250 days perhaps at that stage rossi was on very good machinery compared to a lot of the rest of the field i mean what didn't exist in those days i think it's fairly historically accurate to say is the sheer 
depth of and quality of machinery perhaps the riders you would say because these have always been the top 20 to 30 guys in each of the categories in any given year but there certainly was a wide disparity in the bikes in terms of quality back in the two-stroke days well yeah there was the a kit bikes there were b kit bikes there were factory bikes that had all the crazy new pipes and everything else and yes rossi did get that but rossi kind of had proved himself capable in the 125 class yeah and and once you've got the top machinery you got to you got to use it and he absolutely did so yeah you know no question let's go back to quattararo because i think you i think there's something interesting here with quattararo as you said he was a kid who had won the cev was going crazy he was the next great thing got to the moto 3 class and disappeared couldn't do a thing with a moto 3 bike made his way onto a moto 2 bike had a couple of stellar races at places where the what was a speed up chassis worked and he was able to shine bright. So somebody took a flyer on him and put him in MotoGP to which he kind of rewarded them with these great pole positions, some early running up front and everybody thought, Whoa, Hey, this is one of these cases where the kid just needs to be on the right bike with the right people behind him. And now this kid's going to take the world by storm. However, do you think that his ability to deal with the pressure of winning a MotoGP world championship would not have been easier for him to deal with had he won a world championship in moto three or moto two because maybe his performance fell off again this year because of the fact that he couldn't deal with the pressure of what he was dealing with he'd never been in that position before what's the greatest thing you can have racing a motorcycle experience so it's yeah. you know, a lot of times people will tell you that to win a championship, first you got to lose a championship. How many times did you see that? Here we go, Formula One example, right? People who lost titles by a couple points that one year, then the next year they came on to win those titles. So I think the same thing kind of is happening here a little bit. That is not to say that Quattro is not a talented rider, and that he does. Quattro deserves his world championship. I will take nothing away from him with that. I just question the way he was dealing with everything around him he seems like nothing bugs him and maybe it doesn't but aren't these the things that you'd like to have at least something to dwell back on in your previous past yeah i mean i, I was thinking about this the other day probably because it had been prompted by this email from gary because for anybody that's been a long-term listener like we have and m- many of our listeners have been listening to the show for years and years and years i remember when quattro came into moto 3 harry lloyd was very knowledgeable of the Moto3 category and the the Spanish feeder series. And so I I distinctly remember Harry kind of really talking up Fabio when he came into the Moto3 proper category. And I also remember levels of disappointment being expressed over the two seasons, I think it was, that he was in Moto3, possibly even three seasons, and the feeling that he had really underperformed. And I just wonder if it's, you know, talking of what we've said about Pedro Acosta this year, Perhaps the weight of expectation on Fabio was so high, given his quality and, and his accolades, you know, championships that he had won before he came into the category. Perhaps it was just all too much too soon for him. He is a very emotional character. You can see that in the way that he celebrates. I mean, it's, it's yeah. quite over the top in a way and uh, almost a bit too much sometimes to a restrained British uh, fellow like me. All the shouting and stuff. He must have a terrible sore throat on a Monday morning. But, um, <laughs> he, you know, he's wearing his heart on his sleeve. You do wonder whether just emotionally that it was just all a bit too much at the time. And, you know, sometimes it's just a question of fate, isn't it? Being in the right place at the right time. And for whatever reason, Yamaha gave him a shot. 
you know, on the strength of those couple of performances, as you say, Jim, on the, on the speed up in Moto2, because bear in mind who his teammate was at that point. That was Danny Kent, fresh off a of Moto3 World Championship. Yeah, made, him, made Kent look pretty bad most of that season. Yeah, which is a you know, great shame. And Dan is somebody I'm going to try and catch up with to talk to. I mean, he's, he's doing really well in, in British Superbikes now, for, for interest's sake, for people that don't necessarily know. But those two were teammates that year. And look how their career paths have gone in completely different directions. So, yeah, interesting point. I think we've talked that one through, uh, Jim. <laughs> um, yes, we have. The, the next point uh, that Gary made was that Yamaha took the championship because only one of their riders was picking up the best of the Yamaha points at each race. But I think that Ducati has ended the year with a much better bike because they choose better riders. Peko might have been champion if Zarco didn't beat him up to the finish line in the first two races and then again in France before disappearing for the rest of the season, Zarco that is. Weaker performances from Miller and Martin also would have added points to Bagnard's tally but their contributions to the bike development will be worth lots of points next year. So I'll just quickly jump in. So I said, I agree with all of that. Uh, and as I said on the last show, Ducati are looking very ominous and Bagnaia would appear to be a firm championship favourite, which I think is what we've be, just been saying anyway. But what's what I agree. to add to that? There's nothing. No, no, because that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've said that previously as well. And you prefaced it at the start of the show by saying what the hell is Davizioso really doing back on a on a full factory 2022 spec Yamaha? I mean maybe yeah. he'll do great things. I mean who's to say? I mean I, I saw a curious quote from uh, Raslan I'm pretty sure it was on the Dorna site saying that he's tipping Davizioso to be champion next year. I think that's probably more a plea for uh, for sponsorship money than anything else. I mean, yeah. that's a little bit like the F1 cars that had no sponsorship running without any fuel in them during testing to try and attract sponsors because they were putting in the fastest time. So I'm a bit cynical on that one. But uh, yeah. other than Fabio, I mean, Morbidelli, I mean, he needs to get fit, doesn't he? So hopefully he'll get his knee issues sorted out. So maybe Yamaha have a couple of championship potentials. But again, if the engine's not an improvement and they're not going to know until they run it, it's, it's all a bit up in the air, really, isn't it? And, and Binder and Davizioso are on the distinctly B-spec team in every just about every regard. I think you, you are not going to contribute a great deal to Yamaha's development path, I would imagine. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take us in a tangent here because we, we've, twice we've talked about Yamaha's engine. And I'm beginning to think potentially that you're going to get to a point from an engineering standpoint that you're not going to be able to wring any more out of the inline four engine because you've got that long crank which means you have an extra set of bearings for the crank and then you can flex that crank if you try to put more out of it you try to twist it faster so there's all those problems that you got to deal with that inertia that's inside of it and you're limited to the bore that you can have and the displacement you can create. So you've got to create a thousand cc's. You're only allowed a certain 82 millimeters on the bore, which means the stroke is defined for you because you're mm-hmm. not going to be able to go over that. There's only so much force an aluminum piston can take when it goes up and stops, end up going upward, and then when it comes back down, same thing. So at some point, in theory, you're not going to be able to twist that motor any harder because there's only so many RPMs you're going to be able to use. Where in the V4, you've got less friction you get to overcome. So that's all. I don't know what they're going to do to get more. I'm, I'm sure they will. They'll find something. It's not impossible, but it's going to be something. They're going to have to do something more creative, like the flat plane crank that they were running. They're sorry. They called it a cross cross, cross plane. plane. Yeah. 
yeah, because flat plane cranks are like in Ferraris, really good exotic sports cars, even though the new Corvette has a flat plane crank, which means we just copied it because we can't do anything original in America. Anyway, so, so I mean, they're going to have to do something like a firing order difference, right? Because it's not going to be, it's going to be about, you know, horsepower to maintain your straight line speed, but they really have to get traction down getting out of the corner and that's kind of what the 22 honda is built upon it's like hey we pretty much got the same amount of horsepower but man we are going to make every use of every pony that we get because we're going to hook up and come out of the corner and that's what alex was saying in the test so hey this thing really comes out of the corners and hooks up so just as like let's go back to what gary has to say yeah okay and then the next one was uh, for 2022 honda and yamaha might benefit from the fact that only one of their riders is getting all the possible points from each race but again i'm betting on a rider in red taking the trophy because now they have the top bike and a lot of top riders most of whom already know how to win championships well again i think um yeah not much to argue against on on that one a few bits and pieces just to finish off. He said, uh, I've been to Valencia circuit twice and it's as flat as it looks on TV. I, I think that's because we were talking about the sort of the up and yeah, down turn. Yeah. nature of the, some of the turns. But um, yeah. I, I still think that there's a bit of a downhill sweep on that final corner at Valencia. Yeah, they, that, they, that, they kind of come true. over the come over the. Uh, I swear the front straight's going downhill because if you look at the buildings, they kind of look like they're like the Lego set going down. But if yeah. Gary says it's flat and he's been there, then you know yeah. what? It's flat. I defer to carry on that one because I've not been there, uh, regrettably, although it is on the list. He said, last month I went with my daughter to Misano for Valet's goodbye to the Italian fans. The atmosphere was spectacular. Don't get the wrong impression from social media comments. Italian fans are great, no matter who wins. Standing ovations to all the riders at the end of each race. Concern for anyone who falls and applause when they get up. Of course, over 90% of the crowd were wearing yellow 46. I even saw a few 46 tattoos. Well, you see those at Silverstone as well. But I wore my Pedro Acosta shirt for the Moto3 race and no one hassled me, nor did the few fans with the Mark Marquez 93 gear. So it's always good to good to hear, Jim. But that's, I think, the same at pretty much any racetrack around the world. I think it's the same among race fans in general, right? Everyone is there. And you may have your favorite, like I'm a Marquez fan. You can be a Benyaya fan. You can yep. be, but there's a common bond about the fact that we enjoy racing, that kind of racing. It works the same, I think, with people who enjoy Formula One. Maybe the people who were who like NASCAR here in the United States are that way, although they are a bit more standoffish and redneckish about who they like. But you know, sports car racing, 24 Hour Le Mans, stuff like that. Everyone's there for the racing as it is anything else it goes to show that honda was always right with the slogan from the well was it the light like the 60s you meet the nicest people on a honda you you meet the nicest people on motorcycles you yeah. just do yeah. and everyone is way cool everybody loves it and it's not like oh well you're riding a piece of crap bike like oh dude you ride too cool man i got this oh yeah well i had one and you go and they're instantaneous bond it happens anywhere it's not like definitely not like people who are fans of hockey that's for sure I, i'm speaking to you pittsburgh penguin fans people in particular you know i've met some of the nastiest people wearing my hockey jersey somewhere anyway that's a whole side story never mind yeah well that was kind of my reply which was you know that very much motorcycle racing is a, a happy place to spectate for the whole family i think i mentioned that after i've been to silverstone and some of the bsb rounds this year great family events lots of stuff for all of the family to do you're bringing up ice hockey which sounds sounds correct you know i've said as compared let's say with football in this country which is very tribal and, and often there's a real kind of menacing air 
between the opposing sides. Uh, you, you don't really get that. You have a camaraderie. And as I say, some, some good-natured baiting and banter will go on between different fans, depending on who they're supporting. But I've never felt anything but love at a, a motorcycle race. Everybody's just there to enjoy the racing. And, and as he says, you know, you don't want to see people getting hurt. You cheer when they get up, etc., etc. Oh, and I said I don't expect to see the yellow 46s uh, disappearing on mass anytime soon. I think that guy's still going to be shifting a fair bit of merch over the next few years. Yeah, people have a lot of that, and they're not going to give it up. Because it's going to be a talking point. Like, oh, you saw Rossi's last race, or you saw Rossi's this race. It, yeah, it's not going away. No. He's a legend, a true legend. And then just finally, and this picks up again on a few things that we've discussed on and off over the last few episodes. He says, uh, I, this, so this is still Gary. I have a friend who is a marshal at the Catalonia circuit. During the Superbike weekend, two of his colleagues were injured in the line of duty. We're all rightly concerned when riders, especially the young ones, get injured or, or even worse. But the riders are compensated with money and fame. The track crews risk life and limb for the love of the sport only. And we all need to take our hats off to these unsung heroes without whom the races couldn't take place. And and just as a footnote to that, I did make a note of this somewhere because uh, I wrote back to Gary and the name of the marshal friend. I, this is obviously the person that was one of the people that was injured is uh, Joanne Ginebreda. I'll probably pronounce that wrong. Obviously, that's a Spanish name. So that was one of the injured colleagues. But yeah, I mean, we mentioned the marshals i think fairly frequently jim don't we because there have been some events in some of the races recently where some of these guys have been in harm's way and have nearly been caught up in some some problems uh, and it is true that without marshals none of the racing would, would happen because it's all voluntary and these people give up a hell of a lot of time not to mention depending on where they are in the world sitting in some pretty atrocious conditions <laughs> rain cold etc often not always but often so yes right from grassroots sport you know the tiniest bikes all the way up to you know the flagship events like moto gp so yeah that, we couldn't do it without the marshals so a big thank you from motopod because we couldn't talk about it if you weren't out there letting the guys race and we'll try to be more cognizant of talking about the marshals and thanking them as we go on because they are truly the people who make it all happen yeah it did give me just in my reply to gary on that one it did give me an opportunity just to jump back up onto my ever expanding soapbox and bring up the issue of the yellow flag infringement rule which i've said on the show before i think it needs to be looked at so the reason being that a waved yellow flag is a signal of imminent danger either to you or others and as such it's an instruction to slow down my thought is that the technology in terms of managing penalty has led us to a dangerous situation where a rider stays full gas through an incident and leaves it to the stewards and electronics to determine if an infringement has occurred. But that totally misses the point of the yellow flag. And as we saw, for example, and I'm not throwing shade on Jake Dixon particularly, but just as a recent example of a rider that crashed in a yellow flag zone and his bike very nearly hit a marshal that was attending to the accident that, that had happened. You know, the point is that yellow flag means slow down and nobody is slowing down. They're just going through and then race direction decides if they get that lap taken away. And that's not a safety conscious way to run the sport. No, you'd think that they could work out a way with the different sector loops that are on the track, that if there's a waving yellow in that sector, that they could cut the power to a bike Mm. by some percentage. Yeah. You know, suddenly the bike won't rev beyond picket nine, 10,000 RPM, whatever it is. So I think they need to do something, but I think we should do that as another show. Have a little talk about the rules and what we like, what we don't like, and yes. how we fix it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 
So let's jump into some news. I'm going to let you take the first item, Jim, because yeah, this one's cool. going to be close as close to your heart geographically it as well. Close to my heart. <laughs> so Coda will resurface turns two to ten in late February due to other activities that are happening at the track. As Dan, David Emmett tweeted, because the way it was written down, it just said they were to repave uh, resurface turns two and two and ten. And as David Emmett from Moto Matters said on a tweet, he said, "What about turns three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. We don't understand commas in English properly here in the United States, so we definitely don't do that. It's good to see that they're at least going to get that part done, so that the race will go on. But man, I am now living in perpetual fear that the race will be taken away from Coda because of the track surface. I don't think there's any way that they can actually fix the surface to keep it from being bumpy. And I don't think repaving every two years is a solution to it because that's too much money to do every two years. Admittedly, I think we're here in America, we're too stubborn to listen to what the people who did Silverstone and did that repaving work to listen to their ideas, which I think have merit and value to what's going on. But at least we get the race for next year, I do think it's going to be a. They had a 10 year deal signed. I'm trying to think the first one was in 2013, if I'm not mistaken, because Marquez won mm. the first. That was his first race he yes. won on the OGP bike. Yeah. So I think it's 2013 was that race because a couple years after Formula One. And I think 2013, 10 years gets you to 2023. So there's at least two more seasons that there's going to be a race at Coda. After that, there's going to be a tough negotiation, I think, that's going to take place between. Dorna in the track as to like whether or not we come to America. I think they know that they need to come to America. Yeah. The question then becomes where are they going to go if they don't go to Coda? Because we like concrete walls real close to tracks way too much than we should. And that was the cool part about Coda was they specifically built to a European Grand Prix level of capability. It is probably the best road course in the U.S as far as like the safety concerns where walls are things like that so i don't want to see it go but on the same time i understand why it would go we'll, we'll see what happens well let's just see what happens after they repave it and the race happens this year i'd love to see a motor gp race at barber motorsport park down in is that in alabama yeah <laughs> <Can> you <imagine? laughs> a oh, hell of a track Man, well, you know, that's the problem. It's like that was one of the things about when Indianapolis Motor Speedway held Formula One races, the Europeans hated it because there's not good places to eat and it's not cultured and it's not whatever. You know what? It's a Midwestern city in the US. We're not, I think, a lot of Europeans, you think of New York, you think of maybe Miami, you think of LA, maybe Seattle. Those, those are the only cities that you know because that's what people see but there's so much more to offer in the middle part of the country that no one sees okay i'm biased i live here but it's just one of those things where you know it's just tough to get people to understand that there's just a different way that we live doesn't make it right doesn't make it wrong it's just different and i would think part of the times that i've been able to travel the few times with work to go to europe and whatnot i've loved the fact that it's a different culture and a different style and a different way of things being done there are things that I truly love about Europe, and there's things that I, no, sorry, not so I, much. <laughs> I want to, I want to go back home. Anyway, I think, so. um, I think the next news item is kind of linked to to the first one, what you just yep. said a moment ago, Jim, which is that I don't think MotoGP can afford not to be in the USA. Yeah, they they have to they have to race there. I think it's such a huge market. You know, I think one way or another they'll they'll find a solution to that particular problem. And the reason I say about point two is because, as I've said before, 
MotoGP has a an understandable but sometimes slightly wearisome habit of following in Formula One's sort of shadow. Mm-hmm. And you know, Formula One is going to have two races in the US before mm-hmm. very much longer because you've got Miami coming on, haven't you? Yeah, around a uh, stupid uh, football stadium. Oh, yeah. As well as Cota. So Liberty Media that look after Formula One very much pushing for two or even three races in North America. Uh, well, in the USA, because, you know, theory mm-hmm. big country should be back on. Exactly. And a huge, huge, global, you know, huge market, um, you know, biggest economy of the world. Let's not forget. So so leading on to point two with MotoGP sort of following hot on the, the heels of Formula One. Um, MotoGP is going to have its own Amazon fly on the wall documentary series, which I'm you know, very happy about. I'm sure it's going to be mightily entertaining, but this is very much off the success of the Drive to Survive Netflix series that's run for three There's seasons. seasons. Yeah. And you know what? Now, I tried watching it and I cannot get into it. Don't ask me why. It's a bit pantomime and I'm hoping this one doesn't go quite that way and it's a little bit more down to earth and real, which I would expect it would be because again, that's the difference between sort of bikes and Formula One. What is it? Who Who is Mark Neal? Is Mark Neal, who did the faster movies, yes. is doing this. Right. So I think he's going to okay. present it in a way because who does not love the faster movies? They're phenomenal. Yeah. And a, I mean, you give me a little bit more access and a little bit more in depth in there. Oh, this is going to be fantastic. So it's going to be out in 2022. We don't know when. There's not a date for the release of it yet. But we know there will be eight 50 minute episodes and all the big names are in the show. Yeah. I can't wait. No, I'm definitely here for that, provided it's done in in that Mark Neal style, which is very much documentary and is not kind of trying to set up a lot of pantomime villains and, and creating perhaps a bit more out of situations than was actually the case. So, I've, I mean, personally, I've quite enjoyed Drive to Survive, but I can see the flaws in it and the things that people like you, Jim, have, have struggled with. So hopefully that won't be the case. So that, that's good news. One, I think, very significant piece of news that emerged a few days ago is that Mike Leitner has left his position at KTM. That's huge. Sacrificial lamb, perhaps? For what? Well, relative to 2020, 2021 has not been quite as stellar for KTM as they might have hoped. And certainly towards the end of the year, if you look at, or the second half of the season, at least, if you look at the form of Miguel Oliveira in particular, just completely fell off a cliff that hurt i mean miguel was hurt let's let's and with a bad injury that isn't one that would be easy to fix okay so is it maybe great okay but i i think this is kind of like uh here in the states there's always a thing like well what's the easiest thing in a team to replace the coach so i think this is kind of the same thing well look we didn't get what we wanted out of everybody else and we know these guys are talented well we're just going to throw away the coach. Well, they couldn't make the bike work with the new tires at Michelin built. Okay, it yeah. happens. Yeah. Everybody's had these down seasons that are there. I mean, I, really, I think there's only one guy in the paddock who can ride around any given set of tires that you want to throw at him. I think you could put a set of Pirelli World Superbike tires on his bike. I think he'd win races with them, and it'd be Marquez. Yeah. The man's just phenomenal with it. Now, again, Top Rack's probably in that same position where I think you could put anything underneath him and he would go to it. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think sacrificial lamb, although I am interested to see who they actually get to replacing, whether it's Brivio. I don't know. I think he's going to leave that F1 deal. Well, again, I mean, this is only sort of chatter that you sort of read and, and hear a little bit here and there, but I'm pretty sure it was over the Valencia weekend. There was somebody was commenting that Suzuki had kind of closed the door on a return of uh, Davide Brivio, who, 
from what I've understood else, as I say elsewhere, we don't obviously uh, have the opportunity to talk to these people firsthand, but is not particularly enjoying life in Formula One, which imagine that, you know, <laughs> what, a, what a shocker. Yeah, uh, I mean, perhaps he would be a candidate to come back. But the name that, that I, I had mentioned in terms of a replacement at KTM for Mike Leitner was um, Francisco Guadotti, who's the guy at Pramac Ducati. No, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but as to why, like, I, I guess we'll we'll find out more. I mean, as you say, maybe they just decided it was time for a change. Somebody with a you know a fresh set of eyes and ears and a new direction, perhaps to take you know the development path or, or whatever. He he is being retained in some form of a consultancy role, but then that is usually the sort of that's the standard sort of gamut that you hear on <laughs> these sorts of movies. Well, that keeps him from going to somebody else, right? It's it's like well, yeah. we're putting somebody on gardening leave. Well, you're going to be a consultant over here. We'll talk to yeah. you a little bit here and there. Eventually, they're just not going to talk to him at all. All I can say is it, it didn't. The, the news story wasn't presented in the sense that he decided he had decided to to leave the team or move on for some you know personal reason or whatever. Yeah. It was very much that he had been replaced or he's being replaced. So that's a a big bit of news. We've kind of mentioned World Superbike. Uh, I just wanted to give it a quick mention. I don't know if you did. You manage to see uh, either of the races? I did not get to see the races because of being on vacation and whatnot. They were noteworthy for, for numerous reasons, but, but in particular because we got to see the Mandalika circuit for the first time being used in, in proper anger. And I have to say, it's a pretty decent track. Cool. Very quick, some really good corners. Always bothers me a bit when, when they sort of build a, a new track from the ground up and it's flat, completely flat. Uh, again, accepting that TV does flatten topography out somewhat, but surely they could have built a hill here and there, you, you know. Because when yeah. you're starting from a green field or a jungle in this particular case, yeah. it seems a little bit of a shame that it's as, as flat as it is, although I suppose that's perhaps better in some respects with TV coverage and stuff. But other than that complaint, it looked very good. So to kind of sidetrack this, because you're talking about elevation, mm. did you see the I had tweeted this out a couple of weeks ago. They have started work at Spa and they took ready on at El Rouge and they're bulldozing back the mountain to give runoff for motorcycles yes yeah tasty people yeah. you want a real racetrack there it is yeah i mean that's <laughs> arguably i would love to see marquez go well. sliding through that thing like up one side and back out the other with the thing just lit up it'd be fantastic and, and then how fast would the ducatis be in that down the kemmel yeah that'll be a sight to behold that is <laughs> pleasing because of course the lady that was in charge of the track who was yeah, tragically was, killed earlier yeah, in the year she was very much the, the driving yeah. force behind trying to get those changes uh, underway for MotoGP. So it's great to see then that yeah. that's actually going forward. And even in the worst case, World Superbike there would be awesome. Absolutely. Anyway, yeah, so so Manzanica looks like a good good track. Uh, MotoGP, I think that's their second race next season. The, the only thing to say about the World Superbike finale was two, as it turned out, flat out races. Because whoever decided it was a great idea to hold a race in Indonesia in November... <laughs> probably uh, there were obviously some logistical and probably they were still finishing off you know aspects of building the place uh, even as the trucks rolled into the paddock for the world superbike weekend so i think that's probably why but they had the most horrendous monsoon weather so it led to the saturday world superbike race being completely cancelled off so bearing in mind johnny ray and top rack you know were still both go- going for the championship that was one less race for johnny ray to bridge the points gap so they had two races on the Sunday, uh, which did take place in not ideal conditions, but not not monsoonal weather, thankfully. So yeah, uh, Toprak got the job done, as I'm sure you saw. Some people said, doing. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I still think it's a great shame that he's not jumping straight across to MotoGP. But in, in fairness to World Superbike, and a few people have pointed this out, you know, World Superbike has been bloody good this year and is going to be even better next year. So him hanging around there and competing at the front, winning races, possibly winning the championship again, is a is a very good place for him to be. And he's said very clearly he, he won't come to MotoGP on Group B kind of equipment. If he's coming, it's got to be on full factory supported and so on, which is fair enough. If he's coming, he wants to do it properly or not at all. So fair, fair yeah. play to him for taking that stance. And it's very much to World Superbike's interest to retain having him in that championship. And of course, Dorna own the championship as well. So it's in their interest that he is there. So it was a good end of season for World Superbike. I just wanted to make an honourable mention as well, only sort of peripherally related to two wheels but frank williams the great frank yeah. williams died this week sir frank yeah uh, one of the last i'd say him ron dennis and bernie eccleston are probably the three guys that totally transformed world motorsport in a way because everything has kind of followed a bit in formula one's kind of um sort yeah. Of heft. style yeah yeah it's, and style. it's sad because uh frank is the last of the garage eastas yes yes and that's like wow you're talking about the real end of an era it's sad but i think frank outlived all expectations considering his the car crash that he was in that yeah. wound up leaving him paralyzed and to you know to you know he was confined to a wheelchair since 1986 yep. and to have lived that long is incredible and he's peripherally involved because uh, I'm trying to, I think it's Williams yes. or something, you know, they have these various offshoot businesses, some of whom are mm-hmm. into electronics and stuff. And some of that has filtered through to the various forms of two wheeled racing. So there is a sort of a peripheral link there. But uh, as you say, he's one of the last great garageistas. And yeah, I think we'll see the Williams name in its entirety disappear from Formula One within a couple yeah. of years with the likes of Porsche and Audi looking to come in as, as full fledged, you know, works teams. And just a quick mention that word on the street is that Steve Day, who left the MotoGP coverage team at the end of the season, is going to wind up as the lead commentator in British Superbikes, which is going to be quite fun. I guess he's just one of these guys looking at an ever expanding calendar with a young family and stuff, thinking I just don't want to be away for 300 days a year or whatever it is. Mm, That's Uh, a show we're going to have to do is how many is too many. Well, exactly. So, yeah, it sounds as if he might be picking up lead commentary duties on the British Superbike series, which will be great. So keeping his uh, bit of skin in the game on that one. Did you figure and out then, who, who re- who's going to be replacing MotoGP? No, Is I there don't any know. rumor? I haven't heard I anything know, about yeah. anybody who's going to. No. Can we get Toby Moody back? I'm just, just throwing it out there. Toby, if you're listening, please go back. <laughs> yeah, I like Toby Moody. I, I, like like Toby I th- We've kind of talked about the Hareth test a little bit. There weren't any official timings being given out uh, as far as i'm aware no there was some backdoor stuff if we look at it benyaya was the fastest person around the circuit quattro on the old yamaha was second quick then rins uh, spargo on the new honda vinyala's mir nakagami bastianini miller and mark alex marquez make you like your top 10 i mean everybody sprinkled in here and there everywhere no one knows exactly what's going on it wasn't like it was record setting lap paces by anybody Yep. Yeah, you can't take this test with a grain of salt. But I think the, the, the big takeaway probably was just the fact that the new Honda, everybody riding it was raving about it. So mm-hmm. even though they didn't have their star man as planned on the bike, uh, unfortunately for all concerned, nevertheless, the people that were riding it have, have given it the thumbs up. So 
perhaps not quite as bad for Honda as we might have feared. Because we want Honda up the front, whoever's riding it. I want everybody at the front. I yeah. want Philly to get better and be there. I want KTM to be there every week. I want Ducati to be there every week. Suzuki to be there every week. I want to see three different brands on the podium at every race next year. I, that's not going to happen, but mm. yeah, I would love to see it every weekend. Because well, and for the good of the sport, you need that yeah. variety, don't you? Yes. It'll get boring if it's the same people and the same manufacturer, mm. you know, taking everything. There could be a lot of Ducati lockouts, though. Beware, people. I'm quite sure there will be because they're going to be half the grid. Which is not not healthy for the sport. Just, as, as by I said, percentage alone. Just yeah. by percentage alone, they've got it. Yeah. yeah. And if Ducati True. can do that, why the hell can't some of the other smaller smaller teams, as we're all told, you know, offer up a couple more bikes? I don't get yeah, it. Anyway, isn't, isn't Ducati getting a lot of money from Audi? Well, maybe, but well, yes, I I, I guess they are. But but as far as I know, I mean, most of the Ducatis that are on the grid next year, outside of the works team, are bought and paid for through sponsorship, uh, essentially. Mm-hmm. So. If that's the case, then well, yeah. well, that business model doesn't work for a Suzuki. Well, you know, I mean, I think part of it is the fact that the Japanese factories don't want their technology leaked out. You know, with a co, you know, somebody buying, I use in quotes, air quotes, buying a 2021 Ducati, and then you know what they do. You know, now you learn how it shape shifts. You learn all the other stuff. Well, I don't think Honda's going to want anybody to have it, right? I don't think Suzuki would want anybody to have it. Don't think. You know, Yamaha might be the same way. They're sort of secretive about their stuff. Mm. So I kind of understand, but you would think that they would have some way to say, hey, you can have support another team. But if there isn't the money in the paddock to have a full other team, what's the point? Yeah. We just need to avoid a situation like you had in Superbikes, but certainly in the late 90s and early noughties where. Okay, the technical regs probably favoured the twins somewhat, but people mm-hmm. sort of somewhat sniffly would refer to World Superbike in the late nineties as the Ducati Cup. Because yeah. unless you were riding one, you were going to struggle. It's almost like we got the same thing here. Yeah, there's yeah, because it's the best bike and everybody wants one. Yeah, that's my point. Few other things. Dorna have announced a new contract with the Catalonia circuit in Barcelona. So that's extended out until 2026, Jim, was it? I think from the yeah. press release there. But what's interesting is that they say that they they got a race going on in 2022. And then they confirm that there are two more events to be held between 2023 and 2026. It does not state that they're going to have a race every year between that agreement. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So is it my theory is that there's already been a backlash from the teams is like uh we're at too many races. This is enough is enough and we've got four races in Spain. Why do we need plus Portomayo is there, right? So you're on the Iberian Peninsula, so call yeah. it five. Why do we need any more? So I'm guessing and I'm hoping we get like an alternating sequence between Valencia and Barcelona because I think what? Jerez is a great track and I love Aragon. Aragon is, is a great track. Yeah, I don't great think track. anybody would lose too much sleep if Barcelona and Valencia weren't having a, a race. Each, I would get a every, better every sleep year. because we're not going to have Moto Three guys going crazy on that straightaway. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Have to watch that <laughs> hey, race again from this year. Like it, like okay. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I've I've said for quite some time I thought it was a bit of a travesty yeah. that there were four races in Spain. So uh, right. that that would make some sense. So I'll get this next one because this is yeah, this, this one is right, I'm super right, excited right about. Right up your alley. Yeah. Yeah. So get ready for it. By 2024, fuel in the MotoGP classes will be a minimum of 40% non-fossil origin. E-fuels are coming, everyone. E-fuels. 
Woohoo! I am excited about this one. And then by 2027, all the fuel in all the MotoGP classes will be 100% non-fossil origin. That is going to be cool because as much as what electric is cool, electric bikes are cool. There's a part of that appeals to me from an engineering standpoint. There's an infrastructure issue and there's an issue with like big countries like the United States about being able to charge your car. And one of the things that people own a Tesla here in the States, one thing that they, some of them do not like, and why they dump them is because of the fact that it's hard to find a supercharger to charge your car in 20 minutes, you know, to only go another 300 miles. And then you got to stop for another 20 minutes. We like to keep going. It's like, that's part of it. It's really going to be cool because there's a bit of play that's going on here. It's like, well, if you already have that fossil fuel content, you can take it because you're offsetting it against something else. So there's a bit of an accounting kind of a game going on here, but it's really going to open up this avenue of technology that nobody has walked down yet. And they're going to lead the charge into this one, which I am 100% for. I think it's a different path. It's still the same idea. We're still cutting carbon emissions, we're, but we're still going to have racing with sound and noise, and it's not going to be quiet. I'm all for it. I think it's going to be absolutely fun. The Moto2 and the Moto3 classes will be continued to be supplied by a single fuel provider. They will have uh, 40% sustainability in 2024 and 100% in 2027, just like the big MotoGP class. Now, in MotoGP, you can pick your fuel supplier. So it's going to be interesting because one of the main players that used to be there but isn't anymore was Shell on the Ducatis. And mm. Shell's not there anymore on the Ducatis. But Shell was one of the first people to kind of do this biofuel thing because if you remember the Audi, the when they brought the diesel in to uh, Le Mans with the Audi, I think the R15, I think, was the first one. Shell had made fuel that was from cellulose. It was essentially tree bark, and they ran that car on it. So I'm wondering if anyone's going to, you know, kind of weave their way into Shell or Ajeep or any of these other companies because these people need a place to go. They need a laboratory. Well, they have a laboratory, but they need a a laboratory. Real, yeah, a mobile real-world laboratory. And on top of all this, one of the main parts of this that I think is totally cool is you're going to see the speed of the bikes decrease, which I'm sorry, but if you're doing 210 miles an hour on a motorcycle, that's too fast. It's not too fast in a car, right? Because you've got a cage around you that's built to sustain an impact of that magnitude. Plus there's the ability of that car, whether it's a Formula One car, GT prototype, hypercar, Le Mans, GT car, they disintegrate and throw pieces away to take energy away from you and you have a survival cell that's there. There's no survival cell on a motorcycle. And quite honestly, I guarantee you, if you stand at the racetrack, you are not going to be able to tell the difference between somebody going 180 miles an hour on a motorcycle and somebody going 210 miles an hour on a motorcycle. <laughs> You're not going to be able to see it. So I think it's a great knock on effect all the way around because the bike will, for a while, they will be slower, but you're really not going to notice it. And if that brings everybody closer together, I'm all for that too. I think it's brilliant. Uh, and in, on the slower bikes thing, I mean, that, that's better for spectators because you get a bit longer to actually watch the damn things because they've gone by so so fast that you, <laughs> you can't really see very much a lot of the time. So slowing them down a bit would be good for all sorts of reasons. But th- this is a good example of somewhere where MotoGP is absolutely leading the field in terms of going down this path. And I'm particularly delighted that it puts to bed any sort of fears of electric bikes becoming the norm in the premier class. Although we were talking a couple of episodes ago about the fact that Ducati are coming in to take over the bike development and, and providing the bikes, let's say. For, right, which is great. 
most of me, which which is brilliant. But it's like brilliant you, Jim, for cities. I, yeah, exactly, and I think this you know, is what they're got doing. A place. Everything has a place. Uh, with cars, I'm totally with you. I, I don't get it. I don't buy it. The infrastructure's rubbish. The range is rubbish. You know, the environmental credentials of batteries, in particular, don't bear much scrutiny. Just as a slight tangent, I was listening to an interview with Guy Martin the other day, and he's doing one of these crazy land speed record things in a Triumph, I think it is. He's trying to break 400 miles per hour or something. And he was that saying that. Good. The Bonneville salt flats have been used so extensively that they're becoming not that great for speed runs anymore. So people are now able to, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to get this right, hopefully I am, salt flats in Bolivia. They'd never used it in the past because you just couldn't get any of the infrastructure there. But now there's a country, which I won't name, but we all know who it is, who are busy mining the hell out of that place for lithium. And now there's decent access roads and stuff. So the speed breakers can actually get to the salt flats now as a knock-on effect, a good one for them, but not for anybody else. So the fact that all these monstrous mines are being operated now to get materials out to build all these batteries, well, prove to me that that's environmentally good for the world yeah. or Bolivia. Anyway, yes. I mean... Yeah, yeah. you're right. I mean, yes. Too far down that there's, path, there's, there's pluses, there's minuses, and you got to figure out how to, how to weigh up the pluses against the minuses and, and figure out what you want. I just think it's cool that they're leading the way in something as opposed to following for yes. the first time. It is a proper sort of sort of paradigm shift for the sport, isn't it, really, to go yeah. in this completely new direction after mm-hmm. decades of using fossil fuels. So I think this is, is absolutely fantastic. And as you say, if it retains the noise and the spectacle and the smells and so on, I mean, that's what, we're, that's what we want to go and see or watch on the TV. You, you at least get some of that from the TV. But certainly as a spectator, when you go once or twice a year, you can't replace that. So it, it, for me, it, it ensures the long-term survival of the sport that we love. Uh, and that is just everything. Yep. Oh, something else that's really cool. There is now going to be a new road to MotoGP, and that is the North American Talent Cup. Much like the Asia Talent Cup, Euro Talent Cup, there is now going to be one of these type of one-make competitions that's going to happen in the U.S. It's in collaboration with Moto America and Moto Rise. They're going to use the Aprilia RS250 SP2 machinery. So it's essentially a Moto3 bike with a stiff chassis. And they're going to have, it's open to riders this year of the ages of 13 to 16. And then next year, the age will rise to 14 for a minimum age in 2023. And it's going to be all the global, it's that same concept that they've been using everywhere to harness talent now it's coming into moto america moto gp it's now it's more of a reason for me to go see more moto america races because now it's let's go look for that talent in america just like you found some in britain and you're going to have any reason well now i've got this chance to bring these kids on so yeah i mean it's a win 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 thing as far as i can tell here so anything any thoughts there rich well, no, just just great to see. I mean, okay, you might, if you're being slightly uncharitable, you might say, you know, a bit late coming to the party on this one. But nevertheless, at least that is a firm you're plan. You're right about that. <laughs> firm plan to bring some, you know, some young talent through and get them on the right sort of bikes to give them a shot at arriving in the MotoGP paddock, being able to perform well straight away, given the pressure and, you know, to succeed or at least show talent as quickly as they have to in, in that paddock. So this is the right way to do it. It's, it's proven in practice. If you look at Asia Talent Cup, as you said, Jim, the British Talent Cup and, and all the others elsewhere in the world. And 
you, you just have to have this conveyor belt of youngsters coming through. So this is going to be the opportunity for America to get some frontline races back at the front in MotoGP again, because they, they really need that. And uh, and to justify races in America, you've got to have some Americans on the bikes up the front. Yep, that's it. So the last thing in the news, and we've already gone way longer than I thought we were going to, but yeah. this is just kind of a neat thing. We've all seen the bikes race at Qatar every year, MotoGP bikes. Well, Formula One went there for the first time ever, and the Formula One cars are 30 seconds a lap faster than a MotoGP bike, which goes to show you what aerodynamics, downforce, and four big sticky tires can do for you. But it was visually you could see just how much faster these cars were. I thought it was an interesting comparison because I think this is one of the few times a Formula One car has been on the same circuit that is used in MotoGP, albeit the abbreviated COVID season of 2020. They were at Mugello and MotoGP was there as well. But there's a lot more with that as far as the uphill downhill thing. This is, I think, more of a better comparison between the two. But it was interesting. That track was still just as dusty as it is for a MotoGP race as yeah. it is for the Formula One race. So I think but it was um, interesting. I think in some respects, the, the fact that the F1 race was run in the dark as well kind of almost accentuated the, the speed difference yeah. between the bikes and the cars, didn't it? Because they were generating yeah. so much spark, you know, so many sparks off yeah. the underside it of the cars and stuff. <laughs> it really is. I mean, but talking of resurfacing tracks, I wonder how long it's going to be before the MotoGP boys are complaining about all the bumps in Qatar now that Formula One have uh, had a chance to ripple the, the tarmac to hell. But Formula One cars tend to only really ripple pavement in the braking zone. Because the braking is so good with the tires, they tend to ripple going into the corner. Yep. It's when you're running like GT cars that are much heavier and cornering, oh, not as fast, but cornering much faster than a MotoGP bike that you tend to ripple the corners. So from what I understand yeah. of no, it. No, I'd, I'd, I'd go along with that. But the, the, I mean, again, we always say we shouldn't talk too much Formula One on this show. But <laughs> I, love, I, you know, I love the Formula One as well. It's a marvel I'm still married after 20 odd years. But uh, uh, <laughs> they were really something to behold. Around was. Qatar, weren't they? I mean, you were right to mention it, Jim. They were absolutely breathtaking. Yep. I guess that's it, right, Rich? I think what we're going to do, as, as we said at the top of the show, we're going to aim to come back perhaps next week and have a look at some highs and lows and goods and bads from the season gone, break it down between the three championships. So we'll try and do that sometime next week, Jim. Definitely. I've got an interview planned with um, a British rider which will be relevant to, to next week's show. So I'm hoping to get that one in the can. Um, so hopefully the show will appear sometime towards the end of next week. I think we, we call it a wrap uh, in terms of tonight's discussion. Definitely. Yep. Remember, folks, you get any kind of feedback, anything that you want to do, send it to motopod at motopodcast.com. Uh, that way all the hosts will get it. I'm at motorgv on Instagram and Twitter. It's Richard Jowett at Instagram and Twitter. J-O-W-I-T-T for you people. Don't forget the other T. I did one time. I found somebody completely different. And uh, with all that, I want everyone to uh, enjoy the offseason. It won't be too long and we'll be back racing again. And remember, if you go out, ride safe. Goodbye, buddy.